0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure for me to welcome David Petinicchio,
1: if I <laughs> <want>. <laughs> pronunciation. But
0: for yeah. once, driving yeah. <laughs> Petinicchio, and of course you won't pronounce it.
1: No, Petinicchio. Okay.
0: Mm. Uh, David is a, is a postdoctoral early career fellow in the department and a research fellow at Nuffield. He, he came here from the University of Washington, uh, Seattle, so another rainy place, <laughs> and he began studies at McGain University. Uh, his thesis was on the disability rights movement in the United States. Uh, he's published enormously for uh, having just received a PhD, research on social movements, conflict and change, comparative sociology. British Journal of Social Psychology, Social Indicators Research, Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, and for today's special, Journal for the Scientific Study of religion. <laughs> so it's a of the, post. <laughs> the other one. So today he's going to present a paper from
1: his research. Please. Thank you. Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, I also want to thank you for this opportunity um, to present a very new idea. I cannot stress, (laughs) as my office mates will already know, uh, the newness of this uh, idea. It's not really a paper uh, yet, uh, which I think makes it all the more important to really um, get feedback uh, at this early stage so that um, I can have some guidance um, as I move forward um, with this topic and hopefully develop it into a um, full-on paper. Um, so I just want to contextualize this idea. I mean, the paper is essentially about how social movements matter when social movements begin to retreat or just enter a period of retrenchment, and also when the government stops paying as much attention to an issue uh, that it one, as it once did um, in the past. Um, this is sort of a. If this turns into a paper, it would be one of the first papers that comes out of the, uh, that's uh, in addition to the dissertation. I don't really address this topic at all in the dissertation, but um, it is related to some of my research interests, um, namely what the connection is between policy and social movements, um, but particularly not in the traditional sense that perhaps social movement scholars uh, would have you sort of think about, and that is that social movements generate uh, policy, right, policy is a consequence somehow of um, social movement mobilization, but um, which I'm not saying doesn't happen, but the focus of my dissertation was really about how policies generate collective action. Um, in other words, that policies create um, or provide certain entitlements and a frame to mobilize around. Um, so. What my dissertation focused on was trying to connect what I mean. I call supply side and demand side. I mean, other people call it this too, or you can call it top down versus bottom up explanations of social change. And that is, um, you know, traditionally, social movement scholars will talk about how movements, organizations, protests, whatever, uh, will shape the policy agenda such that it generates some sort of legislative activity. Um, so I call that a demand-side explanation. Democratic theory and people who study public opinion uh, are also people who essentially subscribe to this perspective, right? That public opinion drives uh, what the government pays attention to, right? What's on the policy agenda is driven by what constituents want to hear about or want, want, or want some kind of action on. The problem is that, particularly on the side of social movements, is that there's a social movements scholars tend to ignore the more institutional constraints that are placed on the policy agenda. That is, it's not always the case, in fact I argue in the dissertation it's almost never the case, that issues just get onto the policy agenda simply because uh, either a social movement or public opinion demands uh, some kind of government attention. There's a lot of factors that shape why government pays attention to certain issues. Exogenous shocks, a change in in party politics, a change in congressional rules, this is of course an American example, the change in who's on on legislative committees, on congressional committees. Um, Are there policy entrepreneurs involved in this issue? Uh, Is there anything to be gained politically by tackling an issue? Um, These are all things that matter outside of what I call demand, right, outside of social movements and democratic theory, uh, public opinion, okay. Uh, So why disability rights? Uh, Disability rights, I mean, on its own is a very interesting case, but it's also, I think, I mean, at least that's what I argue, that um, it's a very interesting case in the U.S. of a very close connection between political insiders and outsiders. Um... What I argue in the dissertation is that without political entrepreneurs, you know, that is, people who have the ability to shift the nature of a policy image, uh, a frame, create a frame, a new frame around uh, a particular issue, without policy entrepreneurs and without policy communities, the United States would not have been a policy innovator in disability rights. So in other words, the reason why the United States was a policy innovator was not because there was a social movement demanding disability rights, but rather because... Poli- uh, political entrepreneurs, for a variety of reasons, I mean I talk about three in the dissertation, but some of it is personal personal motivations, other is professional aggrandizement, um, but also policy experience with health and civil, uh, other civil social policies of the 1960s, kind of drove them to address disability rights without actual any demand. Um, I'm not the first person to... Uh, to have made this claim, although I am probably the first person to bring some data to bear on this topic, um, which is what I spent eight years in graduate school doing, uh, collecting data on this. But essentially what I argue in the dissertation is that disability rights, disability, not disability rights, but disability is an interesting issue because, number one, it always had some amount of attention in the federal, in the U.S. government, which by the way differs from other countries, including European countries. Disability was always on the policy agenda in the United States, and you can go back to congressional record as far as you can go, and it's always going to be there. And this differs with other issues like gender and race and abortion and gay and lesbian rights. These, disability is not like that in that, in, in that sense. It has always had a place on the policy agenda. But there were policy monopolies that prevented other kinds of issues regarding disability to emerge, including rights. Uh, one of the drawbacks about, of having so much attention, or a stable amount of attention, uh, on an issue is that if the attention is about providing social services, it creates a, so, a sort of monopoly around that, right? So you have rehabilitation professionals, certain political elites, and some disability organizations like the March of Dimes and the Easter Seals Foundation, very large disability groups that essentially promote expansion of social services, not rights. So what had happened in the 1960s and 70s is that that policy monopoly started to fall apart. And instead, what emerged as a policy community composed of many members of many different kinds of political elites, particularly political elites who had never had any prior history to disability before. Uh, different committees became involved, congressional committees that had never had any interest in disability. And not surprisingly, by creating all these venues, Right, All of these committees that hold hearings, uh, what happens is that disability groups tend to have more say in the political process because of that. And not surprisingly, around that the 60s and 70s, you have an expansion of disability advocacy organizations and then following, not before, but following the Rehabilitation Act, which established an anti-discrimination provision uh, for people with disabilities for the very first time in U.S. history, uh, you end up with a protest wave. So. Again, disability is an interesting case because it's a case that has always had ties to the government, has had a very well-established and old organizational sector that went through important transformations in the 60s and 70s and became more advocacy-oriented. And it's also a case where policy drove collective action or sustained mobilization. Which is important for social movements because, by and large, social movement scholars tend to conceptualize policy as an outcome of mobilization, and then we don't really know what happens after pot- Well, We kind of speculate what happens after policy, but most social movement scholars, as is my, the, the point of my talk today, don't really say that much about what happens after uh, success. Okay. So I just want to. Talk a little bit at the beginning about disability as this case of retrenchment. I sometimes use the word retrenchment and demobilization uh, interchangeably. A lot of people don't like the word demobilization uh, because social movement scholars think it means that the, the movement is no longer there. And saw what I'm implying, uh, essentially suggesting that. Just like if you think about military demobilization, right? It means essentially a, tra- a movement from wartime to peacetime. I mean, so by and large, it suggests that there's a case of change that happens at a certain point in time where a movement enters a different period of its life course, where it's less focused on external targets. Um, it's probably going to experience organizational decline, or a- the capacity of organizations declines. Its influence probably declines as it relates to political change. And um, there's going to be the decline in protest. I mean, that's essentially what I'm, I mean by this. Um, I mean, we can talk about that later. But essentially, this is what I'm referring to. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about, about um, expectations, or theoretical or <coughs> empirical expectations. Um, this is where I would probably appreciate a lot of advice on, because the literature in this area is not particularly forthcoming when it comes to what do we expect social movements to do, sort of influence-wise, on agenda setting, on political change, when they're in decline? Uh, so the literature is very sparse. And so I will talk a little bit about how I try to come up with expectations here. Then i am going to talk briefly about my data and methods, my preliminary findings, and preliminary is in there for a reason. Um, discuss issues and limitations. or probably more issues and limitations than there are findings at the moment. And then just some concluding remarks. Okay. So, I, I just call this the demobilization paper um, with a Z. Not with an S. <laughs> um, it's probably not the best name for it, but this is essentially what I It's one of those things where you're doing work on something else and this idea keeps popping up and then you don't really have time to address it and other things come up and et cetera, et cetera. But forever in my mind, this will be the demobilization paper. Um, I want to just kind of talk a little bit about the the motivation behind this. Um, After doing the dissertation, or while doing the dissertation, uh, I started working on another project that actually has nothing to do with social movements. Well, maybe something to do with social movements. Um, With uh, a colleague... uh, Michelle Morado, um, and what was fascinating to me is I didn't really know a lot about what the consequences were of the Americans with Disabilities Act. This was people say this is the most important piece of legislation passed for disability. People, by the way, the UN Convention that the United States did not sign recently is supposed to be essentially based on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, the DDA in the UK is kind of based on the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's a very important piece of legislation. I don't know if it's the most important piece of legislation. But what we do know is that um, it has had very little impact on uh, employment uh, and economic opportunities for people with disabilities. So, in other words, what became interesting to me is that 1990, the year 1990 is really important. I already knew from the dissertation that things changed when it came to the disability rights movement after 1990. There's a decline in protest, a decline in organization, a decline in government interest. But this kind of makes sense from a social movement perspective, right? Well, of course, there's a decline. You have the Americans with Disabilities Act. We, you know, we have policy. The problem is that this policy, since 1990, it took effect in 1992, so forget about the two years between 1990 and 1992. The actual employment rate of people with disabilities in the United States has either stayed the same or has actually decreased in the last, every single year since the ADA has been in place. Um, And the gap between people with the income gap, the earnings wage gap between people with disabilities and other other groups in the United States has actually gotten worse. And keep in mind that a lot of this is taking place in the 90s when people were actually doing better economically. The people with disabilities were actually doing worse. Worse than they were before the Americans with Disabilities Act. Not that... We're not arguing that the the Americans with Disabilities Act caused that to happen, but it it had no impact. Why did it have no impact? Because the Supreme Court of the United States essentially became very antagonistic. It became a really important player, not the government, the court became a very important player in in interpreting the Americans with Disabilities Act. So Congress passes a piece of legislation, some people call it the last great civil rights law passed by the United States, that has absolutely no impact on its first title, Title I, which is anti-discrimination and employment uh, with people with disabilities, for people with disabilities but just to give you an example of why the Supreme Court has not been particularly helpful um, in a very important case uh, the Supreme Court ruled that a person who is disabled who has a wheelchair is not really disabled because they can mitigate their condition in other words, they're not disabled because they can function so Most cases before the Supreme Court have not even made it past whether a person qualifies under the ADA, which makes disability a very unique minority or suspect class in the United States because it is the only group where you have to prove that you qualify or that you're a member of that minority. So this has not gone very well for people with disabilities. Um, In fact, if you compare court case decisions, which you can do by looking at the Supreme Court database, where the supreme court has actually been fairly liberal on issues of race discrimination and sex discrimination it has not at all been that way when it comes to disability and why does that matter because policy implementation here is a, is a very important part right it's not just here's policy and we're done right it's here's policy that has done very little there's curb ramps on sidewalks but you know the <laughs> economically the ada has, has done very little, so seventeen years have gone by it 's now two thousand and eight, which is right after I've stopped data, uh, I, started, I stopped collecting data in two thousand I stopped collecting data in two thousand and six because I was writing my prospectus for my dissertation then um, but right after that, the con- Congress, some members of Congress, political entrepreneurs, decided to revisit the issue of the ADA and hence the name here. Restoration Act, which is not the real name, but it's what they call it in the hearings, but it's actually called the ADA Amendments Act of 2008. But they called it the ADA Restoration Act, Restoration, um, partly based on the Civil Rights Restoration Act in the 1980s as a result of Reagan, of the perception or the reality of, of Reagan's rolling back on rights. But, um, I mean, it gives you an indication of what Congress was trying to do. So... The question then became, at least for me, for this particular paper, in those 17 years after the ADA, where was the disability rights movement? I mean, why wasn't the fact that the ADA, you know, is totally ineffective, and the fact that the courts have been very antagonistic, why wasn't the movement mobilizing or directly targeting the government? At the same time, where were political entrepreneurs? I mean, they were clearly quiet for 17 years. So... Why were they quiet? Well, people who study the agenda, policy, will say, well, this disability is in decline now. This is not an opportune time to be talking about disability. So if you have a very quiet period. Uh, I'm talking about federal politics, a very quiet period here. Nonetheless, it doesn't mean that there's some sort of policy success. In fact, this is a really important case where policy had done very little and no mobilization around this happened. Yeah? Can you
2: say a little bit about what the acts actually call for? the original
1: 1990 act and the restoration Yes, yeah, so the so the 1990 the, the Americans with Disabilities Act in the case of employment is the pr- title 1 which called for uh, anti uh anti-discriminate well essentially pr- it criminalized right discrimination based on disability Its language is based on the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, Section 504 of of that law, but the Rehabilitation Act only applied to federal government or any business receiving a contract from the federal government. The major difference between the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act is that the ADA actually has no affirmative action, but the Rehabilitation Act did. That actually call for affirmative action, so actually hiring people with disability of more proactive approach. So really, what the ADA did is that it extended some, the provision of anti discrimination <coughs> to the private sector for businesses of of, of more than ten employees. And is it
2: only to do with employment, what about the No, there's a t- there's
1: education. Title II, I believe, is education, um, and then the the essentially the the uh, making public places accessible, so things like curbs and uh, the ramps and things like that. Yeah. Um, the problem with the American so what the restoration I did essentially was actually, it specifically addressed court case decisions because they essentially argued that the Congress let the courts be the enforcer of the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's supposed to be the Equal Employment uh, Opportunity Commission but the Supreme Court decided that the EEOC, which monitors other legislation uh, doesn't have the right to interpret legislation. This is not just unique to disability. It has this particular Orientation, the Supreme Court, and this actually caused a lot of problems because the, what, what they mean by restoration is what did Congress originally mean by disability? But particularly this idea that if you're in a wheelchair, and you're not disabled. Only, I mean, <laughs> you know, other than the Supreme Court, I'm not quite sure who, what other body or person would agree with that. But the law was interpreted in that way. Um, so they, so so Congress sought to redress some of these problems. Um, and by Congress, it means literally the four political entrepreneurs that they sort of brush up from wherever they were, just like they did with the recent UN convention. They brought up Bob Dole, and you know, people like that. Uh, and then a couple of organizations that had been in place, disability groups that had been in place for a while that have had close ties with elites, generated about six hearings, which is nothing, as you'll see in a minute. They generated six hearings, and they got this legislation passed. And And now we're in 2012, and I'm not really sure what the outcomes are. But we have data until 2010 when it comes to employment, and you know, obviously, it's too soon to tell. But in 2009, 2010, both years saw a decline again in employment. So, so we'll see what happens. Um, Okay, so what I'm sort of trying to show here is uh, this is essentially a measure of how much attention the government pays to disability or to any issue and this is a hearings, these are hearings uh, well at least the dotted line is hearings uh, this is a typical way that people who study agenda setting and, and legislative activity uh, will talk about ish interest, right? This is a, a measure of interest. I also put the proportion of all so this is the proportion in a given year of hearings that are disability related compared to all hearings that were ever held by Congress in that year. So I collected, this is my own data, the, the dotted line is my data. The total number of hearings comes from the policy agendas project and Baumgartner and Jones and and crew collected data and have all the hearings for every single year in Congress. So this is the proportion, I put the proportion there just to show that this isn't a, some artifact of, well yes, all issues were increasing over time. Uh, no, not all issues were increasing over time, a lot of issues actually fell off. Uh, uh, so, this is meant to show that this is not a, some kind of fiction. Um, what's important here is, or at least what I argue is that this is a really good example of what Baumgartner Jones called punctuated equilibrium. Right? Issues are in equilibrium. At some point in time, there's this punctuation, right? Or you want to call it a critical juncture, or whatever, whatever, whatever is whatever your persuasion is in sociology. Inst- you know, institutionalists say critical juncture. You know, they say punctuated equilibrium. It's all the same thing political opportunity, whatever. Uh, but essentially what that means is that, I mean, I don't go back here, but there's a stable amount of attention on disability uh, issues. And then in the late 60s, there's a punctuation right, and an eventual decline. In fact, most issues, which is why it's all the more fascinating as to why people don't talk about issue decline more often, is that most issues will fall off the agenda. They can't stay there forever. And this, is a, this is a If you think about the agenda as a fixed... Amount of space. I mean, not every issue is going to have that kind of attention. So eventually, issues will decline in, in the amount of attention, and some issues will fall off so dramatically that they hardly ever pop up again. Other issues, you know, uh, for example, a good issue and a good example is that criminal victimization of the elderly came up in 1972 and it fell off in 1978. This, of course, is a bigger issue, but nonetheless, you see there's a decline here, and the dotted line is meant to show 1990. Okay, so after, so the ADA is passed, and essentially you have this kind of decline in interest, and and eventually, essentially, goes back to what it was before. It goes back to that steady amount of attention that disability had always received. Um, the story is not is similar, but not as dramatic uh, for actual legislative activity. So again, this is a very similar graph, except it's showing the amount of pu- legislative activity in a given year. So this do- the dotted line here is the proportion of law, disability-related laws that were passed by c- the US government. Uh, the, 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 this is the proportion, comes from the policy agendas project. So this is, the, this is the proportion of disability-related laws of all public laws Congress passed. Okay. The reason why these are odd-numbered years is because these are actually, um, these should be the congressional years. Congressional years are two years. Uh, the reason why I don't put every year is because, and this is typical to for anybody who looks at legislative activity, Congress is always more active in the first year of its congressional year than it is in the second, guess why, elections. Okay, so you have, so because they're busy doing something else, like getting elected. So you have only really one year of productivity. Uh, and so if you put all the years, you kind of have this weird, it, I mean, it looks the same, except it's very zigzaggy. Uh, but this is fairly typical, so this is what this is showing. So in a congressional year, right, this is the number of public, uh, the number of public law, disability-related public laws, and this is the proportion of those laws that are disability-related, of all laws. And. There is less of a decline. There is, it's not as a dramatic of a decline, but there's also important things that happen here that I don't really show graphically, and that is, you know, what are these laws that are being passed after the ADA? You know, most of the laws that were being passed before 1970 were all appropriations, that is, money, reauthorization right, for existing legislation, and um, usually extensions of vocational rehabilitation. Um, and what happens here? Well, you get except for... The one that Bush passed, which is the uh, intellectual... No, it's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act uh, in 2004. Most of these le- most of these laws are essentially what they were in the past. Reauthorization of existing legislation, funding those programs, or in some cases, extending social services. So we end up going back to sort of that place that it was before it was punctuated. Um, what else was happening outside of government? Well... And this is where my life was for the last eight years, um, eight and a half years. Um, It was collecting data on organizations. So essentially, uh, what what I'm showing you here is the foundation rate or the rate of formation of disability groups uh, versus the rate of mortality or uh, disbanding, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I like saying births and deaths, (laughs) organizational ecology, births and deaths, but essentially formation and mortality. If you sort of look here, right, just as the government was paying more attention, this period of punctuation, you sort of have an increase in disability organizations. So the rate, the founding rate, increases over time and then eventually declines, right? Just as mortality rates stay fairly low and start to increase. Right? this is 1990, and then mortality rates are very high. Uh, by and large, this is very similar to what other organizational ecologists have found with a variety of other issues, not just not even movement issues, for example, ethnic newspapers, etc. Why? Because Not everything here is about the environment. A lot of this has to do with the organizational field. Eventually, mortality is a result, for example, of competition within the field, survival, adaptation. Organizations that don't adapt fall off, right? They go defunct. So not all of this is because, oh, there's some change in in the environment. Some of this is actually internal to the field. But what's happening here is, not so much that my... Our, my line here is sort of starting here, but you start seeing formation declining, is that at some point in time, I'm just going to switch to the next slide, you start getting Right, the density of organizations or the capacity of organizations starts to decline right? because mortality now surpasses formation which actually means that you end up getting a, a decrease. You can ignore these or you don't have to ignore them if you don't want to I just didn't have time to take this off. This is um, data that's very similar to mine from my former advisor from a long time ago, Deborah Minkoff, who collected the same kind of data but for different constituencies but the blue line at the top here is um, disability. So notice that, just to go back again, oops, right, this here starts to contribute to density, right? All density is, yes? Excuse me, how um, or you find I mean, disability
2: organizations?
1: Yes, so that's a good question. Um, I guess I, I, mean, I was going to talk about that later, I can just say it now. Uh, but essentially in the United States, there's something called the Encyclopedia of Associations that essentially... Ca- uh, Will do a survey of pretty much all nonprofit organizations that exist in the United States. Uh, consi- consistently after 1961, there's a couple of volumes before 1961, which I don't count because it's very problematic. Uh, And essentially what it involves is me getting books out of the library and staring at a directory um, and looking at descriptions of organizations, which is why it took me uh, forever. Um, So sit there and you go through every page of the encyclopedia, which in 1961 was great because it was this big. In 1980 it's three volumes, by 2000 it's like four volumes, right, which the nonprofit sector has gotten larger in the United States. so essentially that's what it is. It's going through a directory page by page and you can ask me why it's not electronic and you can ask me why later why I had to do it page by page and not look at headings. There's a very good reason for all of these horrendous, tedious things. Um, and we could talk about that. But essentially that's where it comes from. It comes from the encyclopedia of associations. Um, so essentially the, the, what the organizational, organizational density is, right, is the number of active organizations plus new entrants minus exiters, right, people who are, or not people, organizations that are exiting the field. Okay, And so essentially what that produces, right, that increasing mortality, mortality surpasses formation, you start getting a decline um, in organizational density. This is about a 15% contraction in the organizational field. OK, protest. Um, so, I, I know Michael's not here, but I'm really not a protest scholar. Uh, I, as someone who studies social movements, I'm much more interested in the link between organizations and, 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 and obviously agenda setting. but I collected my own protest data. essentially looked coding newspapers. Uh, not as horrible as the encyclopedia, but nonetheless, uh, not really fun. Um, what this essentially shows is really two waves of protest. And just to give you some context, this... Except for the four protests that happened here most of these protests were related to the Rehabilitation Act. Uh, as soon as the government introduced re- uh, legislation that would provide rights, uh, Nixon actually vetoed that, President Nixon, vetoed that bill twice, but never because of rights, but because of the kinds of services and the cost that services would, would essentially cost the taxpayers. Uh, he vetoed the legislation twice, and when people heard of this, remember, there was no legislation before, another is, and someone blocks it twice, you start getting protests. Okay? Most of this protest, until 1979, which is when the first Supreme Court case was heard regarding the Rehabilitation Act because it took five years to get regulations written, also unprecedented in the United States history, uh, because of cost generated a lot of protest. This protest kind of declines, but the protest, what protests occurred here, was actually not about the ADA directly. It was mostly about public transportation companies and also uh, protests against public educational institutions, who were, by the way, the first in the United States to go after the Rehabilitation Act because who was gonna, who had to provide accommodations, public accommodations, well, public education institutions who receive money from the federal government, and public transportation companies because they also receive money from the federal government. So public transportation and public education institutions were the first two major groups that uh, were actually fought against the Rehabilitation Act, uh, particularly section 504, which is the anti-discrimination legislation. So that's what this mobilization is here. I mean, the first to say that, this is not a lovely wave where you have, you know, what social movement scholars like to show you, you know, when you have, oh, mobilization, 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 something happens, success or failure or whatever, and then decline, decline, decline. I mean, it's not quite that clean. Uh, What does happen, though, is after the ADA, right, you get a decline in in protest. And in fact, I was looking at stuff after 2005, and I couldn't even find one New York Times article about protest. So, I mean, this is not like, oh, there's another peak here That does not seem to be the situation Uh, So essentially you have a decline And in fact, what's interesting here is that I call this a wave And I call actually this a bit of a wave Why? Because the protests were related Here, you get these weird Like bursts of anti-euthanasia then nothing then anti-abortion because there's a big anti-abortion component to this ability um, HIV, whether it should be included in the ADA so these disconnected protest events that occurred here Okay. so, you know and, that, and essentially there's a retrenchment in, in and a decline in the use of protest oh, wrong way okay So back to the demobilization paper. What else is the motivation for this paper? And here's a good example as to why you should spend a lot of time writing the future directions part of a paper, you know, at the very end when people say what you should look at in the future, you know, in a a published paper. Because this is where this comes from. Um, Johnson, um, Agnon, and McCarthy did this paper where they look at how social movements influence the policy agenda. And in it they say, at the very end, or close to the end, The majority of analyses of movement outcomes have studied movements in periods of extremely heightened mobilization, or excluded cases from analysis after movements achieved a certain level of success. Research research assessing the outcomes of movements in periods of stable or declining mobilization is needed to help fill this lacuna. Okay. Well, that's what I'm trying to fill the lacuna. So... Here's an attempt to do a two-by-two table, um, because I think two-by-two tables are just wonderful. But um, just to conceptualize this, because I was trying to think of how, do I, how what do I do in a presentation to talk about this. So in this first quadrant, A, and you can't see that very well, but in this quadrant, essentially what they're saying is that most social movement studies, the examples that are used to, to provide evidence for these expectations about their influence, are essentially in periods where movements are mobilizing and also the government cares. So this is, seems to be a problem because b- the things you're saying about movements are all about are, are conditional on these on the scenario, right, being present. So my case is clearly the opposite on the diagonal here, okay? Or at least I'm arguing that it's on the opposite because it's in the 90s neither of those things are true. What about the fuzzy case? The fuzzy cases here. Or whatever you want to call them, I call them the fuzzy cases, uh, Reagan's fuzzy cases. Um, I don't know. I had to spend a lot of time actually. I spent a whole week just just trying to find examples that would fit these particular scenarios. Um, And there isn't anybody who actually says, this is what this looks like. So I kind of had to make some inferences. And one is, some people have argued that the environmental movement in the 80s and 90s is an example where the government was actually still paying attention, or the government. And the environment was still increasing its prominence as an issue in government. But there's actually signs that by the early 90s or late 80s, there's actually a decline in the number of environmental organizations. And uh, there's actually the decline in protests actually starting in the mid-80s. So uh, this sounds like a good example of this. There's another article by, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this person's name same correctly, uh, Jocky, uh, who looks at the anti-nuclear movement in the 1980s in Germany and the United States and essentially argues that the same thing, right? The anti-nuclear movement was actually declining due to competition with the peace movement while issues of nuclear energy and and, and nuclear weapons was actually on the increase in terms of government attention. So I, I put these as examples. What about this quadrant? Again, I have no idea, but it seems like when mo- movement goes in abeyance, so for example, the women's movement after World War II uh, could be an example of an, a situation where, oops, where movements are trying to do something. Uh, in this case, you know, even when the movement was in demobilization, the women's movement actually got 236 bills uh, into Congress, which is quite amazing, uh, in a period where they're supposed to be in abeyance. Uh, Because at a time when the government was actually not paying at all any attention to issues of gender after World War II, and we know what happened after World War II in the United States, Uh, not quite what women, particularly women who were involved in the first wave of the women's movement, thought was going to happen after uh, the war. But the, what is the point of showing you this? The point is, I'm trying to establish what my expectations are supposed to be in a situation that is essentially the opposite of what almost all social women's studies look at. Right? The fact that they don't look at demobilization is very hard then to come up with some theoretical expectations. Um, so this is the question. So is, how, how do I frame these expectations? Uh, here's the problem. Um, so these are everything on this left side here are the expectations that are found in the literature. In other words, surprise, surprise! Organizational capacity and protests are supposed to have a positive influence on agenda setting. Okay, well, obviously, if, they, if the expectation was that they weren't, that we would have very, a big problem with the social movement area, um, and. Most of the literature suggests that there should be very little influence of social movements on laws themselves. And that makes sense because by the time you get to the legislative phase uh, there's too many other factors that determine what happens on how people vote and how people construct legislation to, ha- to say that social movements would matter here, right? Uh, it's called the legislative logic in agenda setting. So where social movements matter is in setting up the agenda. So in other words, they matter indirectly for legislation because in the agenda-setting phase where all the discourse is happening, right, in these hearings. Now, so, very straightforward, right? Positive and positive. This is the idea. The more nuanced, which is not really that particularly nuanced, but the more nuanced uh, version of this is when people talk about political mediation theory. They essentially suggest that, yeah, I mean, these are sort of true, or they're true, but what really matters is whether there's sympathetic elites in Congress. So, what that means is, organizational capacity should matter more, much more, on the con- conditional effect, on the interaction right, with the presence of sympathetic elites. The protest should matter, should be negatively related, right? In an in- if you interact, if you create an interact- interaction term between protests and sympathetic elites, that sign should be negative. Well, for obvious reasons, right? If there are already sympathetic elites in Congress. Uh, what's the point of protesting? So, And again, no dispute here. Laws don't matter. Uh, movements don't really matter in terms of legislation. But these are the expectations as they are described in the literature, and I, here are the articles, uh, very recent articles. That doesn't mean that that those are not the findings. Uh, the findings are a little bit more mixed, uh, if at all present. So anyway, but these are theori- the theoretical expectations, and are not the empirical ones. So what do I have to do here to establish expectations? Well, I, this is the problem. I mean, since nobody's really looked at this, I don't know what the expectations should be. Well. I guess there's a variety of ways you could approach this. One is, well, obviously, if a movement is declining, that means it has less influence, and the government doesn't care, then there should be zero effect. Why should movements matter when their influence is increasingly becoming less important and the government is not paying attention to the issue? Okay. Now, why do I have negatives here? Because the other the way to think about this is this notion of causal asymmetry or causal symmetry, right? If this is true when these conditions are present, then the opposite must be true when, these, when the opposite conditions are present. So that's one way to think about it. In fact, there's lots of work by you know, Lieberson and Reagan and a KKV, uh, King Kahane and Verba, uh, even some criminologists who essentially have argued that, well, social scientists like to think about things as causal, causally symmetric, right? The opposite must be true. But in fact, this is largely not the case. In fact, there's usually causal asymmetry. So uh, if there's causal asymmetry, it means that these cannot just be the opposite. And if they're not just the opposite uh, uh, expectations, then there must be some other causal mechanism that explains how movements matter when both movements and government interest is declining. So what I essentially am interested in particularly is this area here of this chart. And that is that... Organizational capacity, I would argue, would still matter in agenda setting, even when there's periods of demobilization because even though the um, organizational field is collapsing a little bit, there are still organizations that form what people call incumbent organizations, right? They form very important ties with elites that wouldn't just disappear just because the issue is demobilizing, okay? I would argue, though, that the effects are the same, is exactly the same in mobilization as it is for demobilization for protest. In fact, I would say protest is even more problematic when issues are demobilizing because you're not just becoming irritating. Right? You become irritating to the government. government is not interested in your issue. It doesn't really matter that you're protesting. And there's a lot of research in political science, right? Uh, and sociology, too. Uh, Paul Bernstein, for example, who argued that, in fact, after after a while, the protest is not going to have much influence on agenda setting anyway, uh, because it doesn't really provide the kind of information that politicians are interested in. Okay, so I in fact argue that this is not causal symmetry, this is not causal symmetry this is, the, fe- the theory essentially of political mediation should be exactly, this should work exactly the same in times of demobilization, there's the, there's no, there shouldn't be any opposite effects here Because, uh, and again, this is my view or take on this based on a lack of sort of theorizing about what happens afterwards, but this is what my expectations are. Okay, so I talked a little bit about the data already, so I'm not going to spend as much time, but... uh, Essentially, um, this is organizational da- original data that I collected. So it starts in 61 and ends in 2006. That's the period I started collecting. it uh, ends in 2006 for, uh, for, re- for reasons that have nothing to do with the case, but because I had to start writing. OK, so um, uh, what essentially I did is I also coded all the hearings that were held uh, by Congress uh, regarding disability. Uh, so there's 1,275 of them. Um, and also all the public laws that Congress passed regarding disability and there's 393 of them since 1961 well, between 1961 and 2006 um, this is using Lexus Lexus Congressional and the Congressional Record um, the organizations I already explained why I got this this is the, uh, this, this is the um, Encyclopedia of Associations and no, notice that I say here that there's 835 groups, so just to be clear what that means it means that 835 groups have come across my eyes, right? It doesn't mean that there's always 835, obviously, right? It means that, for example, in 1961, there were 253 disability organizations. It peaks at 1993 with 716, and then by 2006, it drops to 579, right? So this includes groups that have come in, gone out, right? So in total, there are 835 unique organizations, okay? Uh, and I've collected you know, 47 different variables. So it's not just a count. Uh, there's all kinds of data that goes with this that's not a lot related to this paper. But So that's what that is. And then, then there's the protest data that came from coding the Washington Post, the LA Times, the New York Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and then I don't talk about Supreme Court data in this paper that much, well, I, not in this presentation. But any other data that's not mine is from the Policy Agenda Project or the Supreme Court database. Um, and I, I, I can talk more about this uh, in question and answer. Uh, okay. So not to the hideousness of... Oh, no, I still have to talk about my methods. Okay. <laughs> Equally um, hideous. Um, so and this is another point where I would really like feedback because... I came up with a way to look at this, which might be totally ridiculous and awful. And I've talked to lots of people about this at the University of Washington by email and oh, whatever. And no one really has a particularly great strategy to, to essentially suggest to me. But this is what I've done. I have two dependent variables, right? hearings and laws. Uh, Both of which are count data and both of which are over dispersed, so I use negative binomial regression. Remember, I'm trying to show how movements influence the agenda and legislation when there's demobilization. Now, to be honest, the first way, this is not the order that I did this in, I first just did a whole model, right, and then I just put demobilization in there as a dummy. problem is I have to interpret three-way interactions, okay? So, um, not really a good time. Anyway, but I'll show you what that looks like. Um, this is not good. Um, so the first strategy was just look at full model, put demobilization in, and do these three-way interactions. Why three-way interactions? Well, if you recall, political mediation theory says that organizations and protests matter on the condition that there's the presence of sympathetic elites. That's an interaction, and another, and it's interacting with demobilization. The so, subsequent to that, I just did a split sample, and it was just bad because I lose a lot of power. But I split the sample, right? Instead of having a dummy variable, I split the sample. I did the analysis pre 1990 and post 1990 to sort of try to compare. Uh, so, this is, how, <laughs> this is the strategy at the moment. So, what are the key variables? Well, protest and organizational capacity or density. And, of course, as I know here, right, in order to test the effects of political mediation theory, you have to I, I use Congress as a, the, the variable. That just means whether or not Congress is controlled by the Democrats. So, 60% or more de- is Democratic. Okay? So, that's the political mediation interaction effects. And, of course, in the full model, full sample, Three three-way interactions are necessary to test this. Okay, and uh, and again, I'm very serious about any suggestions or alternative strategy, strategies would be greatly appreciated. Okay, so anyway, that's what that is. So onto the this awful thing. Okay, so this is the model that essentially splits the sample right in terms of mobilization and demobilization. Uh, these are my two dependents hearings and laws. Uh, so what this is essentially showing this is the, the part that i 'm not as interested in for this paper or this talk at the moment, but this is trying to show the typical effects in periods of mobilization, so that would be you know what happens in that quadrant A right in my, that two by two table that I made uh, i 'm kind of interested in these things that I <laughs> circled um, and by and large, this tends to su- support my argument, I guess, right that protest. Uh, these are lags. Uh, protest uh, has a negative effect on hearings and periods of demobilization. That's what I said should happen, I guess, right? I mean, that's why would protests matter more? Uh, it should hurt, actually. Uh, protest in t- when sympathetic elites are present, right, when Democrats are in power uh, is negative, which is supposed to be. Uh, and then As I said, organizations, when sympathetic elites are present, should actually have a positive effect, because I argue that organizations, just because there's demobilization, doesn't mean that the organizations that have these strong ties to elites will just disappear. They're still working with those elites. So yeah, this is the issue. Now, uh, it becomes really disgusting (laughs) when you start looking at laws. I'm not the only person to have problems looking at legislative activity. Even people who are not, are not interested in separating the model, uh, separating the sample, had problems with this. But it's always messy when you look at legislation. So I have these question marks. Why is organizational density negatively related to, legis- to laws? I mean, I guess you could come up with some story about that, or it could be a total feature of the sample and the modeling strategy. Uh, and it's, and they also are negative when sympathetic elites are present. So again, okay, so this is weird, I actually even have weird written here. <laughs> so this is the idea, so I, I'm trying, so this is essentially what I'm trying to show, what I'm trying to do here. Does these three things sort of fit what my expectations are? Well not when it comes to legislation, uh, legislative activity, right? Okay, so this is the model that has the all the whole sample in it, right? Um, with these three-way interactions. Um, these two uh, essentially conform to expectations and to the split-sample analysis, right? That protest has a negative effect uh, when it's in interacting with demobilization, and it does so also when there are sympathetic elites present. Um, here we run into some issues because I don't have. See so if you go back here for a second. Oops, sorry. Organizations here are significant in demobilization. I, I don't find that to. Uh, yeah, I don't find that to be the case. Um, and then, and then there's the question marks here, because um, I either have situations where something that was not significant becomes significant in in the full sample, or things that were once significant now lose significance, and it's mostly with legislation. And I don't, I, mean, I don't know why. I mean, I kind of have an idea why, and so, but I don't know how to address this problem, um, which is why I'm really interested in some ideas about how to model this in a different way. Um, but essentially, the the key, the crux here which was this tends to be I argue supported and that is that you don't have opposite effects just because you ha- you, you make the assumption of causal symmetry rather what happens is that political mediation theory which suggests that organizational capacity in protest will have a positive and negative effect respectively on agenda setting tends to be the same also in demobilization so that what does that mean? it means that Organizational capacity still matters when the movement is declining, and the issue is declining uh, in increasing some attention. And, and protest has the opposite effect; it actually hurts that amount of attention. So it's really this part here, and I guess I guess this one here too, that I'm particularly interested in, you know, thinking about more. Um, this is going to be a problem. I don't really know how to address why the law, the effects of social movements on legislation is so weird and quirky, depending on how you model it. But other people have commented on this, saying that it's very sensitive to how you, what variables you include. Um, so it's much more consistent when you talk about agenda setting than it is when you talk about legislation. Okay. Okay, so, I'm sure there are many other limitations, but here's some. Here's a, thing. Here's a sample. Um, One issue that has obviously come to mind is, you know, I think about demobilization and as starting in 1990. Now, is that a theoretical or an empirical argument? Empirically, protests and organizational density do not start declining at the same time. Right? So, (laughs) which year do you pick? So if you're strictly driven by, you know, what's happening you would have a bit of an issue because you know they're not quite all at the same you know they some follow from the other i picked 1990 because that's when the law the ADA was passed okay so i picked 1990 because it has an important meaning for this particular case of disability it's the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act but you know presumably this might be a problem right because not everything sort of falls. Oh, here's 1990 and everything falls. I mean, that's not quite the empirical picture, but that is the year that the ADA was passed. I mean, I was struggling with either doing 1988 when the law is introduced, 1990 when it was passed, or 1992 when it took effect. So anywhere in that period. Um, But I picked 1990. Uh, The other issue, and this is something that's coming out in a forthcoming paper, is that, and I feel ridiculous because I, myself, have made a whole claim about this and I don't do this in this talk, and that is that I lump congressional hearings together, as most other people do, but I know better. Because uh, when you disaggregate hearings by Senate and House, you have a very different picture, and it's not just some weird, interesting thing. There's an important meaning behind it. The Senate tends to be much more entrepreneurial on issues than the House. And actually, if you look at what happens, is that the peak of issue attention in the Senate actually precedes. The house, even though the house heard more hearings, the Senate heard more hearings first. It was first on the issue. Okay, so presumably, if you model these differently and you separate it out, you would get different results. The things that I feel like that would have a million things going on if I did that. Uh, but I am very well, very well aware of this particular issue. Okay, um, the other one is what other scholars like to do is instead of talking about protest, or they talk about protest, but they also talk about what they call institutional activities. Which, to be perfectly honest, I am not particularly convinced is a great measure. So this is what they do. They look at newspaper data, because they're probably coding for protests anyway. And then they find every once in a while right, a case where it's an article about lobbying, lobbying right, or a court case that's maybe they, a, a group filed an amicus Security brief, right, friends of the court, or some other what they call institutional activity. Well, I quoted, I went through all those newspapers, I found nothing like that, so I have no idea where this data would come from. So that's a major problem. So, what is the solution? One thing that I thought of because I did remember I did quote all those 1,275 hearings, so I know who testified in those hearings, right? So I know organizations are working in those hearings, but I feel like that might cause some problem of endogeneity, right? Because in the dependent variables hearings, so obviously, if you have more hearings, there's going to be more opportunity to, mope to testify, and then you're using that as a measure of institutional tactics. I don't know. So this is this is a one of these issues. Um, My measure of sympathetic elites. You know, I did talk about how disability rights is somewhat interesting, right, because it has a very close tie with government, etc. Most people, not most, all people use Democrats, percent Democrats in Congress as the sympathetic elite measure. Problem is that disability is a fairly bipartisan issue in the United States. Uh, At least it was for quite a while. So if you look at, which I did, the amount of bills that were sponsored by... Congress since 1961, actually since 1947, uh, they're in fact about even, until you get to about the 80s. So, what does that mean? It means that Republicans and Democrats are sponsoring an equal amount of uh, disability-related bills. Okay? Um, Why am I telling you this? Because this issue of sympathetic elites is, a, I think, is a problem. I feel like if this was an issue, like for example, abortion or gay and lesbian marriage, which is a recent article on this that does something similar, uh, you know, Democrats are clearly the sympathetic elites on those issues. But it's, I don't know if it's that they're that clearly the sympathetic elites on this issue. Okay, um, and then finally, you know. Uh, Sample size. I mean, most people, st- like for example, all the environmental stuff that people have done with using this model have about 30 years of data. Um, I mean, I have 45. So the solution to this is spend more years collecting organizational data, uh, which <laughs> I'm not really that interested in doing right, right now. Um, but the other data is actually a lot easier to get. It's the organizational data that's not pretty. Um, but I mean, I obviously have a problem with the sample, but I don't know how much longer, I mean, you would have to get enough years to get demobilization, right? So we're in 2012. I mean, presumably I could extend this to get more of those years. Um, so again, an alternative strategy would be great. And then just to not leave off with limitations, <laughs> I added this last slide. Um, you know, what I think I'm trying to, what I'm, I think the contribution would be of something like this. Uh, as a project, is to really think about more, uh, to think more about how social movements matter. Because one of the one of the dearths in the social movement area is when it, and when it comes to talking about outcomes. Uh, when we talk about something that's successful or a failure, or, or when we talk about, well, how do social movements matter? In fact, Marco Jr., I think, has an article called How Do Social Movements Matter? Um, and it's always a very kind of complicated, convoluted story about how they matter. I mean, it also depends on what you're looking at, right? I'm the first to admit that I'm looking at a very legislative-focused story. And I have some other data that I'd maybe show you if you ask me the question. But I'm, I'm not looking at what movements have done other than try to affect pol- political change. Okay, uh, So, for example, I didn't look at collective identity or some other thing. That's not political, or, you know, <laughs> I was going to say important. but Not that collective identity is not important, but I don't look at those kinds of things. First of all, I wouldn't even know how to measure that. So, um, so I'm the first to say this is very legislative folk-centered or centric approach. Uh, but I think that this contributes to this notion of, you know, what do we mean by outcomes? A lot of people think, oh, here's policy change. The policy change is hard. It's hard to say, well, this policy is a success. Well, first of all, you need a lot of years to pass before you can say that. I think enough years have passed after the ADA to say that why is it that employment rates have declined every year that the or almost every year that the ADA has been around oh let me put it another way it's never gone up <laughs> since the ADA has been around I think 17 years worth of that is a trend um 20 years sorry because I was 20 years um and I think this is interesting because then it leads to this question of, well, so you have policy and people normally say that there's demobilization. Right, but in this case there's demobilization, but it doesn't seem that one of the important goals of improving employment conditions and, and economic uh, and, and wages for people with disabilities has actually been achieved. So why wasn't there mobilization? And, you know, the idea of co-optation did crossed my mind, right, that the government decided to pass the ADA. By the way, it was Bush Sr. who signed the ADA into law. And it was done, and it was written through in a Republican administration. But there's lots of evidence to suggest that they were very careful, uh, and also very reassuring to the business community. That don't worry, uh, we're not going to come after you. Uh, which essentially is what happened, because the courts never really go after employers uh, when it comes to court cases. So, I don't know, is this a case of co-optation where there's this symbolic success, and then, I, mean, I don't want to say the whole thing is a symbolic success, but it, it's not successful when it comes to material change, uh, you know, like economic change. Um, and the other kind of contribution is that, you know, people like to think that, you know, after a certain amount of success politically, uh, or, or failure, there's, you know, movements go into retrenchment, and therefore they don't really spend that much time trying to influence the government. I mean, to some extent, that's true. But I would argue that, you know, what I'm trying to show is that movements can still influence politics, even when the issue is declining and and there's demobilization. Um, But then the question becomes, you know, what are the causal mechanisms there? How do movements influence politics when there's a a period of retrenchment and when uh, there's a decline in the amount of attention spent on an issue on the policy agenda? Okay, and that's it. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. I'm going to get my big pad here. Yeah, okay. Uh, Thank you couple more questions. Uh, First of all, you seem
0: to uh, define your movement decline. The question is to the number of organizations, the number of protests. I was thinking, for example, the size of protests. Especially, I can think of you know, like as organizations have mature,
2: as a concentration process, more coordination. So I think you could elaborate on that. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, regarding
0: your your it went well, pretty fast, so I haven't been able to see. Uh, but regarding the laws, to what extent do you kind of take account of the fact that laws have once been created cannot be created again? So that kind um, of successful organization in the past relate to successful organization now. Uh, yeah, might have some sort of negative findings. And also,
1: regarding these regressions, it was not totally clear to me your measure of organizational density. Uh, is organizational density of disability organizations as compared to other uh, types of organizations or more types of measure as well? Yes, these are very good questions, and I apologize about the lack of clarity. Um, yes, so protest, size of protests. I, so, yes, I have all that data. Why don't I mean I'm gonna have a really crappy answer to your question, but I essentially fo- so I essentially followed sort of the structure of other people's models that try to look at agenda setting, right? And the problem is one of the things well, okay, so I can't include any more variables than I have in here because I'm already exceeding you notice that the the sample size is 29 and 15, and the other one is 45. Okay, so, um, so I had to uh, exert an extreme amount of constraint in trying to put in variables. But one thing that I did think about, and, and this question did come up, I mean, is looking at what people call uh, when you talk about size, people call intensity, right? So they multiply the number of protests by their size, and they get some kind of um, measure. And so that's, that would be actually a really great thing to do. The problem is this. Uh, of the 179 protest events, I mean, I don't know the actual I mean, percent, but something like way less than half of those articles report the actual size. So then then we have these, this issue where what do I do with this, right? But, you know, one solution, or, I mean, not a good solution in terms of modeling, but one solution is to talk about it in a more descriptive, talk about protests in a descriptive way in a in, in, a, in a future paper, right? Where I can actually talk about, because protest does go up in the 70s and then protest becomes, uh, after 1990, becomes uh, fragmented. So you have a few cases of protests that are not really related. It's not a wave where, you know, an organization comes in and starts holding protests against public transportation co- companies, right? That's They're connected, right? What happens in the 90s is that protest not only declines in numbers, um, I I can't tell you about the size, I can't tell you about the issues because I did code the issues, right? And what happens is that there's a decline overall in the kinds of issues and you get these spots of new issues that never were disability related issues before, like euthanasia, like I said, euthanasia, HIV uh, There's another one. Abortion, right? These issues start. There's these protests, but they're like one event, and then you never repeat it again, right? So, but so you're right. I mean, this is a crude kind of count of protests as a way to gauge influence, right? I did try to model it differently. in, 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 where I only look at protests that are targeting the federal government, but the the actual measure looks very similar. The the, the curve looks very similar. Uh, so I, you know, in other words, since I'm only looking at federal federal activity, I, I look at only federal tar- protests that target the federal government. But I don't have the results are almost identical. So that's you know that's a, so that's a very good question and something to deal with. Um, I think a lot of social movement scholars need to deal with. Um, the other question was about laws. Yeah, in fact, my dissertation is all about, I think what you're trying to suggest is in a is a feedback effect, right? Uh, So I, I actually argued kind of, if I'm understanding you correctly, I actually argued the opposite in my dissertation where I do all these structural equation models to show that actually legislation leads to more protest and then that protest can lead to subsequent legislative activity, right? so it goes in this positive feedback. But essentially what i end up finding is a, neg- is a kind of negative feedback with that. Um, what other people do to control for things like that is that they, put, they put prior legislative activity in a lag, right? Um, I, I didn't do it because I was concerned about the effects. But you're absolutely right, in fact that's a really important point. And your last point about organizational density. So this is not, so this, the the actual organizational density, and it's, other people call it capacity or movement capacity. I call it density because that's what organizational scholars call it. No, it is only for disability. So these are the number of active groups in a given year, uh, plus new organizations that are founded that year, minus the ones that go defunct or or disbanded in that year. So that's that's the density. Yeah. Yeah, no, very good questions. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Some questions about um, some conceptualization. Of yes. One is that you said that the uh, ADA was a failure, and uh, you refer to the employment rate of people with disability yes. and how they have not increased right. like, since 1990. Now, I wonder if the, if, if you use other metrics, other measures, maybe you get different, um, you know, you know, slightly different picture about whether it's a failure or not. Okay. Um, Partly because I think if there is, maybe it has been a success, you know, and therefore protests about disability issue has gone down, and uh, right. organisation has uh, with, with disability as focus, you know, you know they, they feel that they're defuncts in okay. some way. Right. Um, so I'm thinking maybe there are more condition is now considered as the disabled, you know, can that can we have a kind of metric of that kind? You know, if more things are Consider as disabled these days, and allow people to get you know help or something. Then, then that is a success of sort, right? And um, related to this, I'm thinking of Frank Dufflin's book about equal opportunity and how they were in- implemented in America. Okay. The main argument of that book, if I understand it correctly, is that the original civil rights legislation is so vague. Yeah. What is equal opportunity? What is affirmative action? When do you fell out of it? Right. it? Is left open, and it is uh and subject is uh, sort of a human resource managers in organisation mm-hmm. handling it out. Right. Right. So at that phase, you don't need protest organisation to keep pushing because it's passed on to another kind of actor hammering out how to implement civil rights or equal opportunity or affirmative action. So. And that be something of that kind happening? So calling it a failure at this point, you know, maybe a bit premature. Right. Simply looking at number of protests, a number of uh, organisation advocating disability rights, right? Yes. And the other big issue I have is with the idea of, you know, um, disability uh, right groups, you said that they, they're coming down, density has come down and so on. But actually you mentioned there are different kinds of disability issue, including anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. You know, for anti-abortion people, you know, they you know, they, they, they haven't got to the legislation they, they are fighting for, right? They want to repeal, right. Uh, right. you know... Uh,
1: uh, uh, Roe v. Wave, yeah. Yeah,
2: exactly. So, to you know, so therefore the 1990 watershed for them is irrelevant. So, you know, right. so I no, I
1: agree. The mm-hmm. issue. Yes.
2: And then another straight thought is that I think in America social policy a lot a lot of time is driven by veterans, right? Mm-hmm. And the disability issue obviously has to do has a bit to do with veterans, right? And so you can imagine, you know, Iraq and a lot of people with right. physical injuries mental health issues. Exactly. Right. So how's that shaping the Yes.
1: Yeah, these are great questions. I'm getting this deja vu from Job Talk because um, these are no, these are the no, these are important questions. Um, yeah. So is the ADA really a failure? I mean, I'm sort of basing this on this paper that we did, me and a uh, colleague did, where we use like these SIPs uh, uh, data and things like that to look at employment, and we find that it declined. Uh, Your so. But the ADA is also successful in terms of forcing, for example, public educational institutions to have ramps. I mean, this is not this was not the case in the past, right? Um, so, you know, I, I I don't like calling it a failure. I think it's I think it draws people's attention to call it a failure. But uh, yeah, I think it would it poses some problems because not the whole po- so policy like a movement is not monolithic, right? Parts of it work, you know, and parts of it really don't seem to have done very much. I mean, and it's not because the law is not there, it's because the courts have essentially, so I wish I had brought my data, because I just did a blog thing on this. Uh, so for example, 70% of lower court cases that are go to the Supreme Court are ruled against a person with disability, which is versus 30% of cases of uh, sex discrimination, right? Um, and in terms of Supreme Court cases something like 8% of cases are actually successful for persons with disabilities so what it did what what happens but this actually leads to your second second point yes your second point is that maybe it's not the government that's the target of action maybe it should be the courts that should be so of course the government the issuing interest declines. Because I think in your second point, I think, you're, I think I interpreted your second point as sort of when you talked about the Civil Rights Act that when you say other actors become involved, I agree. You know, I, so for example, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, affirmative action was only defined in an executive order following the Civil Rights Act. That wasn't actually in the original Civil Rights Act. I think it was defined in an executive order by uh, signed by Lyndon Johnson. So it's not that it was all in the legislation. And then of course there's all these amendments in 1972 and things like that. So yeah. And then of course what else becomes important? The EEOC becomes important because they are the ones who see the complaints, right? And, and, and Paul I made this very important statement. How do you know when you when you have discrimination? When people complain about it and people file lawsuits. I mean, that's how you know that there's discrimination. So it moves beyond just here's the legislation. It's all these other players, including corporate co- companies, right? Because they also help shape what it means to employ, for example, people with disabilities. So you know, it's entirely possible, and when I was saying that, this le- legal or legislative-centric model here, it's entirely possible that, that disability rights and organizations actually mobilize around other things, like they mobilized around the courts, or more importantly, they may have mobilized at the state level and not the federal level, right, or they may have targeted corporations as they did in the past with transportation and not the government, so in fact the government becomes less important to them as an actor, right, after the ADA. So, if, and, and if I'm not so, I don't know if I addressed your second point. But I mean, the idea of other actors, I think, is important because, for me, other actors, other targets, right, of mobilization that aren't the federal government, right? So they could be targeting the EOC or something like that, right? Um, yes, the third point about this, the types of disability rights groups is a really important. In fact. I'm, I'm now cleaning up my data because I, co- I coded what each of these organizations are, right? So I know whether an organization is advocacy oriented, I know whether an organization is protest oriented, I know what their objectives are, their targets, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think you're absolutely right that it would be really interesting and I think really fundamental actually to include not just organizational density but to actually include the density of different types of groups and how they might matter. Because presumably some service organizations don't really, are not interested in protesting the government right they in fact are in many ways part of that problem they're there to provide service. they're not they 're not there to provide rights or they're not there to pressure the government uh, and you know some groups have, are not particularly political so I think separating out the density by type of group would be re- is really important and I'm, I'm cleaning up the data now so that uh, because there's some missing spots uh, where the encyclopedia was fuzzy about what the stuff what the organizations did so but I will have all that data so I think that's really important and veterans are also very important. Um, and in my dissertation, I actually show disability by issue. And you see veterans are very imp- So there's three groups that are really important. Veterans, the deaf, and the blind. At the very beginning, they dominate as a topic for disability. They are it. Okay? That starts to actually, t- as a proportion, starts to taper off. Even veterans, even with wars, the amount of attention given, other than just appropriations, money, uh, starts to taper off and you get these other things that come up, like transportation and well, rights, broadly defined, uh, uh, technology and, and you know, the, the telecommunications and things like that become important issues as well. So it's true that disability as an issue, I mean, I'm using it as a very kind of monolithic, here's disability, but you're absolutely right that different sub-issues of disability have different patterns, right? So some of them, like the deaf, that amount of attention spent on that has dropped almost entirely. I mean, it's a very, very low. But while at the same time, the concept of rights and access for everybody sort of becomes a more important issue for Congress to deal with. Um, so so absolutely, there there is definitely a variation in the sub-issues within disability and they, and they do change over time. Just like the policy agenda changes over time. Yeah, um, but I, I, I guess in this case, do you recommend like talking about it or doing something with the model, with having the issue separated out, and not just having disability as the dependent? or? We can jump in. Okay, excellent. Yeah. I have a question uh, about the, the demobilization
2: and how much of it, what you're seeing, might be a demobilization of uh, the disability uh, movement and how much of it might be a general uh, shift in uh, social movements in general? Uh, in terms of protests becoming less of a tool being replaced by other tools and associations being less of a form of organizing movements?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, you know, I don't... I, yeah, and... You know, I don't know how to answer that question, I guess. I think... Has, well, one of the, one of the issues is as protests become less of an of an important strategy. I guess it depends on the movement, right? It also depends on how old the movement is, right? New movements, for example, Occupy in, in you know the Occupy movement in, in the United States, the immigration rights movement, all the protests against Proposition Eight and the gay marriages. Those were all protests that were going on in the United States, so protests became really important on those issues. But maybe you know we know that social movements as they get older just like people, <laughs> right? They, they don't protest as much, right? But this has been captured by Stagenborg's work and the idea that organizations become professionalized and formalized, and what they prefer is really just dealing one-on-one with elites in the government and not really doing protest, engaging in protest, although sometimes they still do. So you're right, there may be, an, there is an overall kind of, this is the city to row, we're not in a protest decade, It does not the pro, we're, at the, we're outside of a protest cycle, right? It's declined since the, uh, the 70s. Um, so you're right, it could be it could be that most social movements are in protest, at least older social movements, and I don't know if disability rights counts as one of those, but definitely came after some of the other movements, but protests still mattered, but maybe not for this particular movement, right? It's, it's, it's moved into a different phase of its life, which is really important because then it means, well, what else might they be targeting, right? Uh, might they be doing something else, right? Might they be interested in building, like I said, building collective identity uh, or just even building organizations right? because one of the major problems in the disability rights movement is that organizations have a difficult time being broad, having broad constituencies. This has always been an issue and it's one of those things that the movement activists have tried very hard to deal with and that is we need a broad organization, broad constituents, except that people in wheelchairs do not particularly enjoy being identified with people with learning disabilities example, and this is a huge problem in that movement. It's a very it's a problem with collective identity in disability rights. That a lot of the organizations that came out in the '70s that were protests and advocacy groups that sought very hard to be an all-encompassing group ended up going defunct after after heightened mobilization. Right, they they, they couldn't keep them together. These a very heterogeneous group, right? disability is a very heterogeneous group of people. Right, so there's been a lot of effort targeting at targeted at that, and that could have taken away from focusing on dealing with political issues like the ADA or failure or lack thereof of the ADA, right? So um, so that's a really important point. I think I need to do a better job in, in contextualizing this period. Because I thought about it very much in terms of 1990 ADA, but more generally, what's happening to other movements? What's happening more generally in this time period? Uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point.
0: So I see have some people that unfortunately we run out of time, but the good news is that they are staying in, with us for a couple of years. <laughs>
1: I'm not leaving right now.
0: Clearly, <laughs> the topic is hot, and we're going to hear about that in the future. Uh, just to remind you, Wednesday, Nafti Sociology Seminar is about trends in intergenerational mobility in Britain, new findings from the analysis of world core data as a result Oxford. And next Monday, we have neoliberalism and life expectancy some of this unanticipated evidence on the effects of large scale political economic change on population health. Uh, Ross McMillan from Group Later this month, uh, just for your agenda, there's a special seminar, a special sociology seminar, through Altman from the University of California Davis Doctors and Demonstrators How Political Institutions Shape Abortion Roles in United States, Britain, and Canada, and it will be on Thursday, 28th of February, 2pm. Thank you very much.